Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Are you paying attention to Jackson Hole? Are you watching what all the insiders and the billionaires along with the Fed are doing and saying? You should, because it, it, it had a pretty big effect on the market today. Powell came out and spoke, and the market did a, a complete 180 and turned around and rolled over. Folks, welcome to Your Money Radio. Um, we're going to talk about that and quite a few other things and how advisors are responding to uh, bear markets. And then Michael Ramos's leading sector this week. Last week, he was talking about nat gas, natural gas, which has been doing very well. And this week, um, he's going to talk about another, actually, it's kind of a subsector. It's very niche, and it's, uh, uh, the supply-demand picture looks very good. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. We've got lots to cover, so I'm going to dive right into it. And we've got a few topics. The first topic I want to cover is I ran across this article of four ways advisors and clients are responding to bear markets. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm out, Zach. I've got to do the disclaimer. Oh, oh, All right, folks, oh. if you if you need, this is this show is meant for entertainment and research only. It's to give you information to go check out on your own. If you need individual-specific investment advice, either reach one of us at Revere Asset Management, just revereasset.com, Dan, uh, Don, or Michael at revereasset.com, or you can call us at 855-REAL-WEALTH, or you can talk to your own advisor. Hopefully, though, he's not one of these advisors that uh, falls on number one. 68.4% of advisors recommend staying the course. Mm. Buy the pie chart and hope it doesn't go down too much. Just hang in there, baby. And 80, 80.4% of clients are doing just that. Mm. So, so about 10 to 15% of more clients are not listening to their advisors, and they're just doing it anyway because they're scared. And they don't know what to do. They freeze. Well, they have advisors. Number two, 25.5% of advisors are recommending buying the dip. Only 8.7% of the clients are doing that. Again, because they're afraid. And the time to buy, it's one of the hardest things to do is buy when it's blood running in the street. That's one of Warren Buffett's favorite quotes. And the other thing to do is to aggressively harvest pockets, uh, profits when they're up because you extrapolate and think things are just going to keep going on. Mm. Um, Number three, selling equities and moving to cash. Only 2.6% get defensive. Man, are we in the minority, okay? Only 1.8% of clients recommend doing this. So I guess the other 98% of the clients are miserable and scared to death. Mm -hmm. They should be. All right, number four, not selling but pause on new investments. 2.6% of advisors recommend. Only 1.8% of clients are doing. Now, really, it's just the opposite, folks. When it starts getting ugly, when you see things triggering and starting and you need to get defensive, you need to move to cash. But then, because the principal, the big lump sum is much more important than the little dollar cost averaging $500 or $1,000 a month. So on big sell-offs, is really when you'd want a dollar cost average just the little bits in Mm -hmm. if you're going to do it. You don't want to do it near market tops. You probably want to pause it then, but that's counterintuitive. That's how you know people manage money emotionally. That's how you know it's wrong. Uh, You know, follow the herd. You don't want to follow the herd. 
Easy or, or should I say lemmings? Yeah. Okay, we'll talk. I'm, we're going to wrap all that up. We're going to talk about that uh, with Don when we do, and 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 Michael when we do the other topic. But that article is in the show notes, so you can read that article that talks about these uh, client behaviors, right? And um, and we'll talk about all that and encompass that when we talk about the single stock ETFs in just a few minutes. But first. I want to do uh, the mailbag. I'm going to toot our own horn and and Don. And then, yeah, Don got a really nice email. So this is a new client that came on board. He's very active. He manages his own money for decades. And he's kind of come up with the, you know, recognizes sectors and stuff. And he actually helps friends and family, helps other people uh, to manage money. But it was time to him to retire. And he brought over himself and some friends and family. But anyway, he says, these past few months have been extraordinary learning the opportunity a extraordinary learning opportunity for me as I have watched how you got in very early in the rally with SSO adding progressive exposure as we passed the moving averages. That one takeaway has been huge, but that is just one of the many observations I have had and have internalized for my own trading. Okay, confession here. I have selfishly enjoyed having you do the recap each evening. What a pleasure to have the master teach. But I know we will need to bring young Michael, in parentheses, not Alex, if you want to <laughs> learn that, what that, that's an inside joke from a few shows ago. Um, uh, young Michael along, it will be interesting to watch his brilliant mind start to lock in on what is really important. You and Dan have been an incredible blessing for my family and friends. Thank you for all the training and effort you did over the years to bring your skill set to this level. And thank you for managing your life in such a way that you can be clear and level-headed day in and day out. That takes daily discipline and is not easy. Wishing good things for you and your family. Okay. Kind words. So so that was a very good one. Okay. And and we like that. Now, I've got another one. This is is segueing (laughs) into the single stock ETFs and ETFs in general and, and kind of a broader discussion of the first topic, what these investors are doing and how to handle this market. Yeah, yeah. Because today, right now, as we speak, it's what about a little after ten forty one? Ten forty one Central Time, and the there's blood running in the streets in the market because the Fed came out and spoke. But so Uncle Tony is a longtime listener. He's a great friend of the uh, uh, Revere, but he also is an avid trader, and he's an IBD. He's does IBD. He lives. Investors Business Daily Methodology. He's one of the stars. Yeah, and we call him Uncle Tony. And he is a purist, meaning he only likes individual stocks. He hates ETFs because he thinks you average and you get the lousy with the good, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read this very quickly. ETFs always, I'm sorry, let me start over. ETFs always suck, always. Well, (laughs) over time, they always suck. There will always be periods where even the best stock catches a cold. However, all TF, all ETFs are averaging devices. Some stocks will do well, other will have the flu and die. Costco only underperformed uh, the, the the particular ETF he's talking about, the uh, consumer ETF. Over uh, Costco only underperformed the ETF in one narrow zone. That was May when the market decided all retailers were the same. When Walmart reported bad numbers, Costco flopped. As soon as Costco recovered their great numbers, it recovered very quickly. ETFs actually caused this linkage another part of their evil existence. And and he says, I did a comparison with the Consumer Products ETF XLP over last year. All the stocks are shown. And he showed Costco was up 20%, not counting a small dividend. Coke was under just under 15. The ETF is up at five, only 5%. Procter & Gamble the largest block in the fund is 2% plus a 2.5% dividend. So that makes it okay. Mm. That's sarcasm. Walmart is down 10%. Estee Lauder is down 20 Why on God's green earth would you buy Walmart, PG, and EL? You wouldn't, but you do when you buy the ETF. You can use the ETF to track the direction of a sector, but please don't buy this steaming... This, Bad thing. Okay. <laughs> now he's a so, little outspoken. Words. So, 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 and, and he's got a point now it's a lot easier to look with hindsight, looking back and looking at the stocks in the sector and what they did. Always 2020. But, but I said, 
playing devil's advocate, some sectors and even sub or even subsectors. I'm sorry, I, I missed a paragraph. Yeah. My response, Uncle Tony, I agree with much of what you were saying, especially the dilution diversification of bad to get the good. And some sectors are simply too broad with different companies and business models that the companies diverge greatly, like your example. So in other words, this consumer products have all different kinds of stocks blended in there, yeah. and they're, they're, they're vastly different. I mean, I don't compare Estee Lauder really with Costco. Those are two different yes. sectors and business models, in my opinion. So that's pretty broad. But anyway, um, 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 some sectors, yeah, right. Uh, but one still, but here's what I said, but I said, but one still has to be a good stock picker and sift through lots of companies to identify the winners. So, so look guys, it does take a lot of time. I mean, being a good stock picker takes a lot of work, a lot of diligence, mm. and you really got to dive deep. Some retail investors are not going to do that much research and they're busy with their own lives. So in that sense, an ETF is a tool with diversification. So I said, playing devil's advocate, some sectors, even subsectors, can be more precise and you get the benefit without having to pick the right stock. This would also allow you to take a bigger position, exposure, without being top heavy in one stock. This is especially true. Um, where else I to thought? This is especially true when you've taken defensive action and now are heavy in cash during a, bi a big correction or even bear market. And now you want to get back in the markets while identifying new leaders, because the worse the market was, the fewer leaders you have on your watch list because everything looks bad, right? Yeah. You, you can get sector or even broad exposure while you are picking up individual names. So it helps not having cash drag when the market starts to rebound. Um, this will reduce cash drag right after a deep decline during the initial recovery. As you keep adding, you can reduce the exposure and make room for your new individual stock positions. Also, leveraged ETFs and inverse ETFs can play a role in the overall portfolio management. But I will say that there is nothing better than a purist picking the right stock that's working. And that would be in a primary uptrend. Okay, lastly, now this is going to be our second topic the juror we're going to talk about. Lastly, these new single stock ETFs are interesting as they are leveraged or inverse on a single stock. Why personally, I would simply increase my position size if I'm long that stock. There are inverse uh, ETFs that may be very valuable. So if you have a big legacy position you were trying to hedge or in the short term, these might make sense. Um, although I still haven't seen the regulators or IRS take on whether this would be akin to shorting against the box. That was when people would be long a big position they inherited and they just short that exact same stock. And the IRS came in and said, no, that's a constructive sale. We think you sold it. You owe the, owe the capital gains tax. Mm. Okay. So the question is, will that be disallowed? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if it is acceptable, it's a great way to hedge large positions that one, one doesn't want to sell and avoiding capital gains. It would also be a good way to short individual stock positions in an IRA. So up till now, with an IRA, you had to use a, a sector or a, a broad ETF, inverse short selling uh, ETF to be able to, but if you see a stock that really looks ugly on the chart and it really looks bad, you could actually short that individual stock inside an IRA because you're not allowed to short uh, in IRAs. Oh. Uh, all right. now. Um, and I said, as an example, uh, and t Tony sometimes employs a covered call strategy to generate income. I said with, you know, covered call strategy, especially large positions during tumult, you could use a single stock inverse ETF to hedge your position so you don't have to unwind the stock and you can still do the covered calls. You can still clip the premiums. So anyway, that was a whole lot in one. So I want to hold off on the inverse. I mean, the individual uh, ETFs, because we'll talk about that in a minute, Don and Alex, I do want to combine the use of, e I want to talk about the use of ETFs and portfolio management with A, Tony's idea that 
you know, all ETFs are bad. You need to do just individual stocks. And number, and the first part of the thing of what these advisors are doing, staying the course, not getting defensive, whatever. So it really is, how do you manage in this choppy, volatile market? Right. And also, should you be using ETFs? So that's pretty uh, broad, gives you lots of room, Don. Why don't you kind of weigh in and comment on that? On that. Well, I think it was Mark Twain that said, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And Tony wouldn't have sent that email at the end of May. Now, he mentioned May as a period of underperformance, but I will show, Zach, if you show my screen, the, and you are, this is the, uh, this is the comparison chart that Tony sent along with his email. Uh, picking the period, the one-year period from 824-2021 to 824-2022. It conveniently shows Costco up 20% with the XLP up 5.8%. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. I'm going to pick a different different, uh, time frame. I'm going to pick the two-month period of 331 to 531. This shows Costco down 19%. The same staples index down 2%. Now, the argument that somebody, if somebody was looking at this chart, would say is why in the hell would I ever want to take on the single stock risk of Costco when I could own XLP and only be down 2%? So time frame is important when you're discussing these situations. Even more important is to take a look at the overall chart. There's times when Costco is going to be healthy. And there's times when Costco is going to be unhealthy. And I'll revert to our three time frames that we always talk about. Short term, above the green line, 21-day exponential moving average. The red line, the medium term indicator, the 50-day moving average. The black line, the 200-day moving average. That's the long-term indicator. Costco's above all three. No problem. Hold it. Enjoy your profits. Costco starts breaking down like the entire market did mid-April, breaks the short term, breaks the medium term, and then breaks the long term. There's no way in hell I'm holding Costco, even if I can sell calls against it and even if I can collect the dividend when it's under the 200-day moving average. And that's just one of my rules. And I just showed a chart that proclaimed my confirmation bias of when to hold and when to not hold a single stock versus ETFs. Let me, let's go a little bit further and show looking even worse. Let's go for 4-2022 and let's pick the exact bottom. Let's go 5-20-2022 because The long term is made up of a bunch of short term and intermediate terms. And here's Costco down 28% while the XLP is down 7%. So if you want to take a 28% haircut in something that you own, be my guest. I'm not going to. Uh, The bottom line is that individual stocks will underperform or outperform their broad sector that they're classified under depending on market conditions. And that's just a fact. Can't argue one way or the other that one's better than the other, because no matter what time frame you pick, I'll pick a different time frame proving my point that goes counter to your point. And then you'll say, but, 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 and then I'll say, but, 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 and then we'll just end up agreeing to disagree. But one thing you can't disagree with is the price action across short term, intermediate term, and long term. And that's how we manage money here at Revere. Well, so, so that's a very great point. And so that actually is a perfect segue to talk about, you know, timing is everything. Timing is important, right? And and like Bill O'Neill and IBD and the IBD methodology and the stock purists, kind of like what Tony's talking about, leading stocks will make you the most money in a strong primary uptrend. They're better than ETFs. We got that. We agree with that. Okay. Now, but did you know, but, 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 but the average stock, the average leading stock, the best of the best. When you enter a bear market, Don, how far does a leading stock fall on average? 72% top to bottom. And most on average. People, and on average, some are more, some are less. So if you look like in the beginning of this year when tech 
fell out of favor. Some of the best tech stocks in the world fell 40%. Mm. 40, even, they didn't fall the same. Some did fall that much, but some didn't. So the point is, there's a time for these leading stocks, and there's a time for the sector ETFs. Now, the one other point that I made was, like in a narrower niche, like just the semiconductors or just the solar or something, it's more of a narrow subsector, if you will, and it's a little bit closer. Uh, you're going to get a little more, I mean, it's still averaging, but you have a, le- a smaller universe and you don't get such a wide diversity of, of companies like you do in that consumer that consumer company. So. That, that happens very often in uh, gold stocks and oil stocks also. Yes, yes. Gold uh, you, get, you get very strong group moves within, uh, and, and of course you can pick the winners between them, but you can also pick the sector itself for a little more diversification, less single stock risk. Uh, the point is you're trying to outperform the market for a certain amount of risk that you're taking on. You can outperform more with more risk or less with less risk. and uh, it's totally up to the risk appetite of the person making the decision. <clears throat> well, now, another thing along those lines, we manage portfolios by dialing up and down the risk on how much risk is in the market. See, people's risk tolerance is important because they'll get scared and they'll get shaken out. But in our opinion, in Revere, the risk of the market, the sector, or the stock itself outweighs my personal risk. Because you know why? Because my risk tolerance changes over time. When the mar- when it's hitting the fan, everybody turns into a wimp, right? When the market's going up, FOMO kicks in and everybody wants in. So even when a client fills out that risk tolerance questionnaire, I take it a little bit with a grain of salt because I know that their appetite and mood is going to fluctuate with what the market is doing. And that's why you want to adjust the portfolios constantly. Don, can you very quickly hit on how you use the leveraged and inverse ETFs in overall portfolio management. Right there, we were talking about making money in a stock or a sector, theoretically going long. Let's talk a little bit about the, 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 the broader uh, index ETFs, both long and short. Right. So when, when we re-entered the market, we've been, we exited the market on January 24th which was this break below the 200-day moving average. If you follow us, you know how I feel about the 200-day moving average. It's the black line here. Uh, Every bear market, including every severe bear market, takes place once you get a weekly close below the 200-day moving average. This is a chart of the S&P 500. We went up and down a little bit versus the 200-day moving average, but the big change happened on uh, April 21st when we tried to get back above at a very negative move below. And then we just continued in a free fall over the next couple of weeks. Common theme is that we were below the 200-day moving average. This is when we're in bear market risk territory. So the market is risky. These are the stats of the last 13 bear markets going back to 1968. We bottomed this January to July bear market 24.5% off the highs. So we need 32.5% to get back to even. Worst case scenario, let's take the average of the six bear markets. They're down 44.5% top to bottom. To get back to even, you need an 80% gain. Usually, once we top out and we come down and break the 200-day moving average, the move from high to low is approximately 8%. If you look here where our highs were, it was actually 9.2%. But it, normally it's between eight to ten percent. We that's how far above we'll start until we break the two hundred day moving average. And eight to ten percent. The markets, the mar- the indices, the in- the market, correct, the index, eight to ten uh, percent until you break the two hundred day moving average, and that's when risk picks up. So when we once we're under the two hundred day moving average, we then look to see where we are relative to our intermediate term average. That's the red line. That's the 50 day where we are relative to the short term. That's the green line, the 21 day. This entire period, we're trending lower. We're as defensive as we could possibly be. Uh, get back above the short term. We're going to take a little uh, of risk on. But anytime we dip back into the water, we're not going to risk more than 2% of the overall portfolio before we would get stopped out. So we're position sizing 
to manage to that. And if we start making gains, we'll, we'll put a little bit more risk on, but always with the negative 2% uh, risk to the overall portfolio. Uh, sometimes you'll get stopped out quickly. Sometimes you'll make a little bit of progress. Sometimes you'll make good progress. When we went back in on 715 of this year with a, with a move back above the 21 day moving average, we got a very strong run off the bottom up until we hit this, what level is that? The risk level, the 200 day moving average, our long-term. So we hit there, we started taking some risk off. We got back below the short-term moving average in the past week, we started taking more risk off. Yesterday, the market was seemingly trying to front run Jerome Powell. They had a nice move back up to the 21. We put more risk on. This morning, we had complete opposite, a very harsh reversal to the downside after his speech at Jackson Hole. So all morning, we've been taking positions off as this appears to be a change in character for the market, at least in the very short term. This move back below this green line, our short-term 21-day exponential moving average. So those are the trades that we've been making all morning. For what we first do is take a look back at what our most previous buys were. And if they're red, we cut them. Our, our most previous, the two buys that we made over the last two days, plug and PANW, we cut them for small losses. Uh, the prior buy to that was uh, we increased our SSO position. Uh, and we took that back off because it went negative when we broke back below the 200-day, or sorry, the 21-day moving average. Now, SSO is the key tool that we use. Dan's question was about double ETFs. We like the risk-reward of being able to use half the amount of capital that we would use with SSO versus just buying the S&P 500. I like the S&P 500 because of the diversification inside of it. It's got 11 broad sectors. Granted, they're weighted differently but there's half value, half growth. So when the market on any individual day decides that growth is gonna perform or value is gonna perform, all that rotation takes place within the S&P 500. So you don't have to guess which sectors are leading and which sectors are lagging. All it is is a bunch of money moving around between sectors, but the progress of the overall S&P 500 continued to trend higher. So we use the SSO to get our initial stake. And then in this case, we uh, over 20% gains up to the top here uh, on that position we took it we got up to a 20 percent uh, consistent position size uh, so that's a four percent gain to the overall portfolio and then during this run we were also adding individual stocks which were outperforming the market uh, some of them didn't work we we cut those very quickly we don't want to lose ever more than 0.2 percent on any individual position that we take so we're always cutting our stops we realize that really it is just a, a game of numbers a law of averages and we know that as long as we keep our losses small and we let our gains run that we have a 50 50 batting average but we make twice as much as we lose and that makes our system long-term net profitable so cutting the losses letting the gains run when the gains start to come back to certain levels, you take the profit, you take your profit, you cut your uh, loss and um, wait and see how the market unfolds. We could very well continue to make newer lows this summer uh, or as we enter the fall. We don't know. What we know is what's happening today was a very negative reaction to what Jerome Powell said. And we're positioning accordingly by wrapping up profits, cutting losses and reducing our exposure to the market. Okay, I do want to clarify and, 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 and not necessarily correct, but clarify something you said. You said when you take an individual position, you'll cut your losses very quick so that you don't have any more than a negative 0.2%. That's against the overall portfolio. That's, he's not talking about right. the individual stock. So if the stock, the stop gets hit at 6% on maybe a little more volatile stock, um, it's you know you 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 adjust your position size of each stock so a more volatile stock you need to give a little bit more room because daily trading could hit your stop but you still you take a little smaller position for a little less volatile stock you can put your stop a little close it's a bigger position right a very a very volatile stock we can take a two percent position and a ten percent loss on that and that's a zero point two percent hit to the overall portfolio. A stock that moves slower, we can take a 4% position in and take a 5% loss on that. 
and that's the equivalent, uh, the same equivalent, 0.2% to the overall portfolio. So, so the big question is, are you at home? Are you the listener? Are you guys doing that and managing your position sizes properly? Not only your position sizes when you buy them, but then you've got to have an, a, I don't want to, we call it a beta adjusted stop loss. It's not, it's a little more sophisticated than just beta, but it's a, it's an adjusted stop loss based on the volatility of the stock. Okay. All right. So let's go a little bit further. One more thing that I, 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 I would article that we came across, I think Michael or somebody may have found it and sent it to me. And it's talking about the midterm seasonality and the potential for markets to rally into, you know, like into a recession. We're going to a recession, but it's saying what, what happens in the midterm? Right. Well, the 12 months prior to the midterm, the return is only 0.3%, 0.3%. Historical average is 8.1% annualized per year. That's the long-term average of the S&P. However, 12 months post-midterm, it's 16.3%. And it's especially true for the three- and six-month periods right after. So the strongest time is right after the midterms. Three-month average is 7.3%, and six-month average is 15.1%. It was kind of funny. They had a little caveat that if you took out the 60s and 70s, then the prior 12 months before the midterms is actually closer to, it's like 8%. It's right close to the historical average. And those were choppier. Again, they're kind of cherry picking and mincing words. And that article is in our show notes. The only reason I bring that up is people can get down and negative on the economy. And if we're going to recession and the Fed's raising rates, and they can get it in their mind that the market's got to be terrible, and you could actually have a big rally. And likewise, things could be looking up, and we're kind of pulling out of a recession. The market's already had a rally. They kind of front-run the recession, and you could have big institutional money taking profits. So as you recover, you may actually get a, a correction in the stock market. So you've got to separate Main Street and Wall Street. Both of those articles are up there. Uh, I don't think either you guys want to comment on that, right? I was going to go to Michael's uh, hot new leading sector that he's bird dogging. Is that is that okay, guys? Yeah, sure. All right. So Michael, uh, last week, Michael he loves doing a deep dive in fundamental research and loves finding, you know, either supply demand dis- disruptions or whatever thing, whatever fundamental things make the story really strong and give a sector or a stock the impetus to move a lot higher, even in tougher markets. Last week, he talked about nat gas, and natural gas has been been uh, doing very well. So this week, Michael, what are you going to talk about? Let, let's, let's hear it. Silicon carbide. Um, so what led us to... Um or led me to do more research on silicon carbide and and figure out what's going on is is the charts uh, a lot of these companies that are involved in the in the space have been performing very well um on a relative strength basis they are leading and they're outperforming the market so when a group is really taking off and doing well um it's always it's always wise to to see what's going on and and look a little further into it so i was tasked with um doing some research on silicon carbide and why this market is performing so well. Um, so I've got some some fun information for our listeners today. Um, so just quickly, uh, I'll just briefly describe, um, or anyway, um, silicon carbide it was nat- is naturally called mos- uh, moissanite, and it was discovered by this guy, Henry Moissan, in 1893. And it's essentially, um, it, it's very, very similar to diamonds. So it's an extremely hard um, and durable material. It's very rare to find um, naturally. So there's companies now that make this compound called silicon carbide, which is the manufactured version of um, synthetic, moissanite. Yeah, synthetic, and yeah. It's synth- synthetic, yeah. Synthetic version of moissanite. So, and and moissanite is also used um, as, as uh synthetic diamonds and um, it's used in jewelry but the real use case for it and, and the reason why these companies are doing so well is because it's it's really important and it's critical for the um, for the green energy movement and especially the electric vehicle space um, it's used in in EVs as um, so 
in, in electric vehicles, you've got battery technology and then you've got motor technology. And the way that motors are run is through alternating currents. And the way that batteries inject the, the motors with energy is through a direct current. So what these silicon carbide um, semiconductors do, the inverters, is that they convert um, this, this uh, direct current, change it into an alternating current so that it can feed the motor more efficiently. And um, it, it used to be done with silicon, which also served the same purpose. But silicon carbide is better because it's a lot more more efficient. Um, silicon uh, inverters currently lose twenty percent of their power um, when they're converting the, this direct current to alternating current, and the silicon carbide doesn't have that power loss, um, and it, it's actually a lot smaller and can do a lot more in a small amount of space because of its um, durability and the fact that at high temperatures it doesn't expand as much as as regular silicon. So they can decrease size and weight of these components, which reduces cost over over time. And it's also critical in the way that um, these these fast chargers can actually charge the batteries with a uh, with a silicon carbide uh, inverter to charge the the electric vehicle. You can actually cut charging times in half, and it's a lot more efficient, effective, um, less um, less loss in 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 heat which which results in more power so overall it's just better for for the industry and um there's there's two companies that that i'd like to mention um there's on semi and there's wolf speed and i guess we'll bring up wolf speed first uh, ticker wlof don if you can bring that up perfect so wolf speed um there we go wolf speed had a had a big gap up on earnings and the reason for that is um, they're, 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 uh, the, the silicon carbide market, in 2019, there was a report that it had it valued at $460 million and was projected to expand to $1.5 billion by the year 2027. But new reports, actually, um, that came out in, in um, 2021, so just two years after that $460 million valuation, the new reports um, measured the market at $1.62 billion, which, was, which is more than what the market was supposed to reach by 2027. So two years later, they had already surpassed, surpassed those estimates. And now the estimates are, um, are projecting the, the market to grow to $5 billion by 2025. So this market is growing a lot faster than, than anyone could have anticipated. Um, so the companies that are involved in these silicon carbide, um, either chips or actually manufacturing them, the, the material themselves, um, have, have just grown at a rate of beyond surpassing analyst expectations. And what's special about Wolfspeed is that they are, they're vertically integrated. So they actually manufacture the silicon carbide, but they also make the, uh, the, the chips that they use the silicon carbide to make the chips. So they're what's called a um, a foundry as well, and in the in the semiconductor space, foundries are they're the ones who manufacture the chips. So Wolfspeed manufactures their own chips, but there's other companies that want to use this silicon carbide to make chips, and they have partnerships. So companies uh, like Umbrella and and different um, semiconductor Nvidia, all these all these companies that make chips that go into um, EVs or, or your iPhone or your computer, um, they all, most of them don't have their own foundries. So they use companies like Wolfspeed. OnSemi also um, manufactures the semiconductors. So they use these um, silicon carbide foundries to make their chips. They design the chips and then Wolfspeed and OnSemi make the chips. Um, so that's something special about them. And um, I'll just mention one last thing. Um, uh, on semi, um, well, yeah, I guess I mentioned it. Yeah. They, they have their, their foundry. Um, they also, they're, they're involved, um, in, in every step along the way. So there's a, there's a diagram in an article that Dan is going to post, um, to this video, but it shows how, how silicon and carbide powders are placed in the furnace. And then the, um, the, the crystals emerge. 
and then they turn them into uh, these these uh, wafers and slice them, and then they dice them, and then they package them in these. Um, there, there's different. I won't get into the technicalities of the the different kinds of uh, semiconductor components, how, how they're made, and the different use cases. But they package them in in certain little devices that can then be used either in the um, the the lidar for electric vehicles and the charging station in in your phone in your tablet. Um, there's just an unlimited amount of uh, use cases. Uh, so, and it's also involved in a big thing. Uh, so 5G technology, the, the last component of it that's really accelerating is 5G technology has now allowed for something called internet of things where devices are now connected online and they're constantly um, feeding information nonstop to, um, to for example, your, um, the, your, your power meter at, at your house, where um, instead of the Department of Water and Power coming and checking your meter, a lot of these devices now through, through Internet of Things <laughs> and 5G are connected where they can be measuring that, uh, that reading uh, from a remote location. And that's, that's all been enabled through 5G. And these semiconductor chips, the silicon carbide chips, are a huge component in that Internet of Things IoT communication. So. Um, as IoT expands and 5G adoption expands, um, all of these wireless communications will be powered by the, um, the silicon carbide chips. Right, so, folks, let me make it real simple for you, because what he's saying is 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 really important. You know, they 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 used to call it Silicon Valley, right? That's what Silicon. It was time goes goes into every you know from chips from computer chips Nvidia to cars to Silicon goes into almost everything technology. Yeah. Well, now I think they're going to have to rename it Silicon Carbide Valley, because that well that seriously Silicon Carbide is going to be the replacement for Silicon for most of the higher tech. Or the, because it makes it it's more efficient, it's faster, and it's smaller. And you know, with computers, everything computing power, space and time and speed is everything. And so they're more efficient, they're faster, they last longer, and they're more durable. And so this silicon carbide is a huge. It, it is it is a big deal. Yeah, better in it, every way. It, it is a big deal, and they like it because and also on from the political geopolitical standpoint, it's quote greener, it's cleaner. Mm. So they so they like that too. Everybody so, likes it. Everybody, man, everybody, yeah. everybody wants some silicon carbide. Everybody wants some. All right. So, folks, in all these articles, all these things that we see, you can you can read for yourself in the show notes. Yes, show I put description. A, yeah. I, Ian, I put a couple bonus things in there. We just didn't have time to talk about them. Uh, one was uh, 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 Robert Schiller. You know the Case Schiller Home Price Index. He said uh, real estate prices are likely to drop more. Uh, oh. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, I've been talking about that for months, but oh well. Um, and then um, there's another article by Liz Ann Stonders from Schwab. She's our chief economist. She's saying that the market probably has another leg down, and she gives her fundamental reasons. But anyway, all of the stuff that we talked about on the show, you can do your own research. You can look down there. All right, very quickly, let's dive into the markets and talk about what we're seeing and what you're going to be go- doing and how you're going to be positioning heading into next week, Don. Sure. I'm showing a chart of the uh, a 60 minute chart of the S and P 500. And this was the most recent break, uh, breakout. This happened on uh, 8, 10, 8, 11, uh, and was considered really bullish. What we did though, is run into this 43.25 area was right where the 200 day moving average was. That's the black line. It's not shown on this chart because it's a 60 minute chart. So that was uh, the question then was, are we going to go sideways? Are we going to go down? Are we going to break through back to the upside? We started pulling back and then we had a big gap down on the 19th, uh, sorry, on the 22nd. And then the question is, can that gap hold this 4,100 area, which is we were going sideways here before we had that big breakout. So this 4,100 area is what's considered support for the market. The breakout prior to that was around 4,000. So now we just look backwards from the levels that we reclaimed on the left side of the chart to see if buyers can come in and keep the market above those levels. You can see today this big, ugly line down from uh from the 11 o'clock hour, this is when Powell finished speaking and the market reacted negatively to it. 
Now, right now, we're holding this 4,100 area that is extremely important. The next leg down is to the 4,000 area if we break that. Uh, and it's also clear that we broke below this 4,120 area, which was the prior support while we were going sideways and the market was trying to figure out what we were, what our next move was going to be. Let's go back to the daily chart here. Here's those market going sideways. Yesterday is a, uh, a what's called a bull trap. Today is exposing it as a bull trap. In other words, the market moved higher above a key area and it stopped in reverse lower. So anybody that bought this breakout, this bullish breakout is now underwater. And until we get back above this 21-day moving average, which is around 41.50, this is considered a failed breakout. So like I said before, when we were going backwards, we just retrace our steps. What did we add on recently based on this bullish action? Are we underwater on it? The answer is yes. We cut our losses. Uh, so we sold plug, we sold pan W, and we sold uh, the additional SSO position that we took on this break above the 21-day moving average. And now we're not going to predict if the bottom is in today or if this is just a pause on the way down or if we're going to bounce. We're going to let the price action tell us what the next move is going to be. Right now we're sitting at 41.04 as of 12.20 Eastern time uh, today. And if we break below this 4,100 area, we're going to be getting uh, even more defensive. In other words, uh, hedging the SSO long that we still have. And if it looks like we're going lower, we'll just wrap up our profits on SSO. And then we'll end up being uh, on the short side as the market works its way lower, which means we'll be uh, profiting from the market going lower. So anything that we're still holding, we've got gains in. We'll mark them and see where we want to take our gains. In other words, where our stops are going to be, we already have them in place. If they get hit, the market will take us out of the market. Or the the market will take us out uh, by price discovery. We're not guessing. We're going by the facts. What the market's telling us to do, and uh, we just move throughout the day doing that. Look at the next day, see what our expectations are, see if those expectations are met or broken or exceeded, and uh, react accordingly. Leading stocks so far are holding up very well, uh, while the market's down over two percent today. Uh, the leading stocks that we own, Wolf is down only a percent, LNG is only down a percent, Exxon down less than a percent, and SWAV down 1.1%. So the leaders are holding up uh, right now. That's the majority of our portfolio. And as long as that continues, uh, we'll stick to our stops, uh, possibly do some offensive selling if we think that the market's going to, I said think, I don't mean think, if the market looks like uh, it breaks below this 4,100 level and it's going to head lower, meaning if you break 4,100 and you don't get right back above it, that's an indication that uh, odds favor you going lower. Uh, and we react again, not predicting, we're reacting. So we went from offensive yesterday to completely undoing that and now looking at defense because we broke this short-term moving average, which was very critical. Okay. And so folks, I'll wrap well, that up. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so I'll update all this on Friday night's video. Yeah, I was going to mention it. Okay. So what Don has just said there for, for the layman, not for the stock nerds, but for the lay person that doesn't follow it that closely. So we still have a, a, a hedge on a small hedge. And then we've got some stocks that are still holding up. If the market continues to get weak, we will unwind those positions that we have left. And then we could, the hedge can turn into a net short position to try to make money on the market going down. In other words, that your hedge can actually turn into a, not a hedge anymore because you, you don't have anything left to hedge. Right. You're actually trying to make money on the downside. So in any event, folks, listen, um, Don does his 21 over 21 uh, market insight video. We do a short market insight video every day. The market is open. Okay. And Don's 21 over 21 shows a 21 leading stocks. Um, and it's kind of a weekly wrap up. It's good. It, it, all the all the videos, daily videos, are good. But if 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 you get if time is not your friend and you're really busy with family and you just got lots of stuff and you can't watch every one of our Monday through Friday market inside videos, the the Friday one is you know if you can you yeah. can only catch one you a week. That's one. That is yeah. the one to catch for sure. But you still you could try to catch a few a week and that will help, folks. Listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. 
Just send them to revereasset.com, and in the top right button, they can hit that subscribe button, put in their name and email address. We're not going to spam them. We're not going to, we don't sell our email list to anybody. It's up to them to reach out to us using the contact button, put in your email address in the contact button, not ours, and, 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 and send us a message and we'll get back to you. We'll answer you back and give you a response on, you know, if you're asking about uh, the market or a stock or you just want to find out about Revere and want to find out more about becoming a client. Um, so it's up to the client to reach out to us. You can email any of us at dan at revereasset.com. Don at revereasset.com or Michael at revereasset.com. If it's, if it's, if it's admin and paperwork and sign up, you can uh, email Meryl at revereasset.com. You can also call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Folks, have a great weekend. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you next week on Your Money. Barring any extrogenous events or misconfusion. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.